my mother-in-law, uh, one Christmas, got me uh, for Christ- my Christmas present was a scale. <laughs> it's the truth. It happened. I was like, technically, not to throw under the bus, we asked for it. But when I say we, Marcy asked for it. But for some reason, she put my name on it. It's like, all right, I, I can take a hint. Uh, now, I see that scale every day when I go into the bathroom. It may have been a while since the last time I stepped on it. Uh, and whenever you step on it, it tells you the truth. And you need to hear that. Uh, and sometimes we can kind of be around church. We can be in Christian community. But like we, don't, we don't step on the word of God and let it kind of show us the truth. And some of these things, it's like, you know, I've kind of known about these things. or I've kind of felt uh, just kind of distant from these. But when we kind of get into the word of God, hopefully it shows us the truth. And we're going to go back to God's word here because uh, I get it. Uh, here's a guy up here who's going to talk to women about what it means to be a good wife. Uh, I'm sure it'll go great. It's going to go <laughs> It's going to be wonderful. Uh, but we're, we're not listening to me. Hopefully we see it in God's word of like, what does God uh, call women uniquely to be in the role of a wife? Uh, and we want to see that in, in his word. I think there can be a lot of uh, temptations for preachers when it comes to situations like this. It's just like try to make it as less offensive as possible. It's like, well, actually, in their culture and this and that, like, uh, I'm just going to tell you, it's offensive. Um, it's, it's offensive because of probably the lens in which we look at it from. Um, from the lens of where we're at in our day, in our enlightened thinking, we can look at it and really be offended. But I think it might be more of a lens problem than a design problem. And if we could have a lens of like, our God is good and he's trustworthy. And we can look through that lens. We want to see what he's calling to. And I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure um, uh, on women, especially in the wake of feminism, on like, you can be anything you want to be, you can do it all and you can have it all. You you can be uh, the career woman and the great mom and the great wife and you can just do it all. And I just want to tell you, I love you. You can't. You can't do it all. Nobody can do it all. The question is, what are we called to do and what should we be prioritizing in our life? What has God uniquely put on uh, the role of a woman as a wife in that. So let's look at the text to try to do that. Um, before we do, I think one of the tension points uh, <clears throat> is that we look to find our value and our fulfillment and our identity in our roles, what we do. But you don't find fulfillment in roles. You find service in roles. You find fulfillment in Christ. And that's an important thing to remember. And the point of life is not to live out your dreams, but to live out God's design. And the good news to that is God's design is better than your dreams. Like, it is satisfying. It is rewarding. Uh, It is good for you. He made you. He knows it. And he has a plan. So I'm going to start out blunt. It'll get increasingly awkward and then hopefully encouraging. But here is the... um, statement I want to give, and then we'll try to unpack it just like we did for the men. The biblical wife embraces the inclination to help her husband lead in godliness while valuing the ministry of the home and understanding the influence of her character. I know it's behind me, but I'm going to read it again because the words that we choose here matter. The biblical wife embraces the inclination to help her husband lead in godliness while valuing the ministry of the home and understanding the influence of her character. So let's kind of 
break that down. We're going to start with the inclination to help. So back to the beginning, back in Genesis. This is Genesis 2, uh, 18 through 22. He says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that's what its name was. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Now, uh, there is some James Brown theology uh, in Genesis 2. Uh, And I don't know how many James Brown fans, so maybe you won't even get this. But it is a man's world, right? It is a man's world, but it doesn't mean nothing or won't do anything without a woman or a girl. Uh, there is a sense where it's like God made Adam, put him in the garden, commissioned him to have uh, dominion over it and, and do it. And then he's like, you need a helper. Like, you're not going to get far by yourself. This isn't anything without a woman. I need to bring a woman into this picture to kind of help the flourishing that I have in mind here. And there's a clear intention of creating woman was to make her a helper. Now, we hear that word helper, and I think we're kind of wired to cringe. Like That sounds less than, it sounds subservient, uh, it sounds degrading. We don't like that word, but we have to understand to the original audience, this would be a very uh, honoring term. We're saying like, you're getting this when you're uh, the wandering Israelites kind of out of captivity and you're coming out of Egyptian culture and you're saying, no, those people, they have value. Like they're there for your good, for your flourishing. They're there to help, and it brings dignity to that. But we hear helper, and it's kind of like, I don't know how we like that term. Um, there are two ways to see helper. Uh, one is like a servant or like the help, um, or the other is in a sense of like a hero that comes and, and helps. So uh, Rudy is my youngest daughter. If she's at home and a bookshelf falls on top of her and she's helpless to get out from under that, and I come and lift up the bookshelf, I am her helper. Right? I came and I provided help, and she got out from underneath that. Now, because she's an each, I would say, stop crying. Let's go out. We've got some yard work to do. Uh, and then she's going to come and help me do some yard work. So now she's my helper. So there's two like, ways that help has been happening here. What does it mean when Eve is a helper? Like, which one is that? Now, God is often referred to as a helper, or the helper of Israel. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. But we're not in charge of God. Like, we're helpless. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And he comes to our rescue. He comes to, to help, to provide salvation to us. But when Christ came, he also didn't come uh, to be served, but to serve. He, he came as a, as a servant. So in a sense, he was both the hero and the servant. So when it comes to Eve, what did it mean for her to be a helper? Well, kind of both. In a way, there, on one hand, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Like, you're not going to do this by yourself. You are incapable to fulfill the commands that I have for you alone. You need her to do this. But on the other hand, 
Adam was clearly tasked with this responsibility to provide leadership. So in some sense, she's kind of coming along to do what he can't do, but also she's there to help him do what he's called to do. So there's a little bit of both that's happening, and it's said that she is a helper suitable for him. Like there, There's more than just uh, procreation here. There's collaboration in this relationship. He's there to cultivate this garden. They're to multiply and fill the earth, but they're also to, to cultivate this garden. And he's just kind of paraded all the animals, and he's naming them, and in that he doesn't find a helper suitable for him. It doesn't mean that he doesn't find helpers, right? Just not a helper suitable, because like you can like harness up a horse to plow a field, but that horse is never going to stop and turn around and like, hey, Adam, I think it'd be better if we did it this way. Like He's not going to do that. Right? Where he's not able to provide that kind of help. But with Eve, it's like you have a helper that's suitable for you, compatible with you to provide help in this way. So Eve came along and filled what was missing. So it's not Adam is a superior genius and he gets this dumb trainee. Like that's not the point of this narrative at all. Uh, the help, uh, there has to be a, a level of competency. She's competent to provide help. She's She's good gift for you in the tasks that I've assigned for you. Um, it's not a secret if you know us at all. Marcy is smarter than I am, um, by far. Um, I'm glad nobody laughed, because <laughs> when I said that at our church, they all laughed, like, ha, oh, we already know. I was like, that was kind of hurtful. But, but <laughs> this, I feel like this room is respectful. It's like, really, Jake? I wouldn't have guessed that. And it's like, I... <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, but she is, she is by far smarter than me. Um, but it would not be helpful for her to just kind of push me out of the way and like, just let me do it. It wouldn't be helpful if she was just kind of um, let, let me thrive in my stupidity. It's like, well, it's your job. Like that wouldn't be much, very helpful for her. This isn't about inferiority. What am I trying to say? You get it. You get it. Um, it's about design. It's about a design and imaging God in a unique way in how we relate to each other. And it's more complimentary to be the help than the one needing the help. But listen, ladies, when you are manipulative, it's not helpful. When you are degrading, it's not helpful. When you undermine, it's not helpful. And when you just step aside and get walked on, it's not helpful. When you watch your man behave in an ungodly way and you never challenge, that's not helpful. Like you're called to be a help. God commissioned Eve to help. Uh, now, the reason we say embrace the inclination to help is because it's not something to be forced upon you, but rather a disposition you willingly take. That this posture of I'm here to help. I'm here to provide help. I'm here to help godliness thrive in you as my husband, in our home, in our children, and I want to help. Now, how exactly do we help? Let's kind of get further into that statement. So it's embracing an inclination to help. Uh, first off, their husband lead in godliness. Now, we saw before that there is a call on man to provide godly leadership, and here we see Eve was created to be a helper fit for him. So if you go back just to uh, review it, verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a, what is that word? I'm looking for audience participation. It's the second one. Helper, there we go. Um, 
And then further down, um, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, there you go, fit for him. So it's clear like, hey, I'm providing, I'm bringing a help, help mate or help me to you. Uh, it wasn't there um, to, to run the show, but it was there to, she was there to help. Now, Adam was formed, we said this before, Adam was formed from the ground and he was tasked with cultivating it. It's my manly beard. He was made from the ground and he was tasked to cultivate it. And she was made from Adam and tasked with helping him. Um, and specifically helping with the task of glorifying God by carrying out God's commandments. Uh, to, to cultivate this ground, to multiply and fill the earth. So listen, this is important. It's not help him do whatever he wants to do. It's God saying, help him do what I want him to do. That's a very important distinction. The task given to Eve was not help Adam do whatever Adam wants to do. It's I made Adam, I gave him a commission, I put him in there, I've given him a call, help him do what I've called him to do. Help him lead out in godliness. Now, what is clear throughout Scripture is that women are huge influencers. Not like we think of influencers in social media world, which women tend to dominate that as well. Um, but throughout Scripture, you see women are huge influencers, for good or bad. We see a pattern of women either helping men do good things or bad things. Uh, you see an example of Rahab hid the spies, Deborah strengthened resolve of Barak, Ruth convinced Boaz to allow her to come under his protection, Abigail dealt kindly with David while pleading for the forgiveness of her foolish husband, Esther risked her life and intervened to direct her husband to the true threat in his kingdom, and on the other side, Eve led Adam to disobey, Jezebel led Ahab into greater sin, Delilah tricked Samson, Herodias' daughter uh, convinced Herod to behead John the Baptist, and for good or bad, um, there is a powerful influence that women have, and it is to be meant to use for good and not evil, for godliness and godly th uh, for godly things, which means helping is not just helping. Helping is stewardship. Like there is a stewardship, just like there is a stewardship placed on men, to like you are to lead out in godliness. There is a responsibility and a stewardship put on the woman to say, you're to help accomplish godliness. You're, you're to help in that endeavor. So let's keep uh, trucking along. While valuing the ministry in the home. Flip over to Titus chapter 2. So we're going to have this inclination to help their husbands lead in godliness while valuing the ministry of the home. Let me read this passage. This is in Titus chapter 2. Three through five. Here we go. Older women, I'll let you decide what that means. <laughs> Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, sometimes there's an attitude among women in church world of, we just need to do Bible studies, we just need to um, 
get into the word. We just need to um, learn theology. And I want to tell you, I'm all for that. Like, know your Bible. Get into the word. Understand it. Learn theology. Take VST. Yes and amen. I'm just saying that's not what this text is about. This text is a call to practical godliness to the unique callings of a wife and a mother. Like to help be a godly wife and help be a godly mother. That's like, this is what uh, he's calling to him. This isn't just about, hey, can you find a woman who can break down soteriology? It's like, no, can you find a woman who is a good wife and a godly mother? Like this is what's being promoted in this text. Um, there's instructions about practical godliness and the unique callings of women here. Now, sometimes whenever this passage is read, it comes with this, this disclaimer of like, well, this isn't saying that a woman can't work because um, it says uh, to be workers at home. And they'd say like, this isn't prohibiting women from working outside the home. And I would agree with that. I don't think this text is a prohib- uh, prohibiting women from working outside the home. But we can't just say what it doesn't say. We also have to say, well, what is it saying? And it's clear they're saying that there is a unique calling to the ministry of the home given to the woman. Um, there is something that, that can be uh, and should be valued. There's a special ministry that women have in the home and in the family. Um, I, John, I think Johnny pointed this out to me. Showed me this study where... Uh, Women's bodies are made or designed to regulate the temperature when they're holding a baby, that they can cool down if the baby needs to cool down or heat up if the baby needs to warm up. Um, But men only heat up. I was like, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. (laughs) But like, what an amazing design, right? Like, like God had intentionality in that. That's, that's incredible. Like, there's this, just kind of this unique calling to, to the woman of, like, to, to be a wife, to be a mother. Like, there's this, this special thing. And, and there's this tension of, like, the work world. And, and, and there's this all kinds of sensitivity in this room right now. I, I get it. I get it. Right? But there's this, this treasuring and value of the way that God designed women uh, in motherhood and in being a wife. In fact, if you work uh, and you take your kids to daycare, I'm guessing you drop them off to another woman and not a man. Like, like there's something in that design that you see it lived out. Um, Now, if that sounds degrading, why? Why would that sound degrading? It's not the word of God that's degrading it. Is it our culture that's saying, like, no, you shouldn't be, you know, tied down to that? Tied down to it? To your family? To your kids? To your husband? Like, that's a weight? That's a burden? Like, I get it. We, we can have this kind of, this, it can, we can hear it and just feel like, this sounds so degrading. But maybe it's because there's been a downplaying of the family in our society. Like, there's this idea that, like, well, real work is out there. Real work is what I get a paycheck for. Real work are these things where you go, you know, you have to dress up for real work. You got, you got to go do these things for real work. And when we're in a society that places our value in those things. Or how about, like, when you're in those conversations with people and, and it always, like, people lead out with that question, like, well, what do you do? Right? And if you're a mom that, that uh, doesn't go to work and you feel like you have to say, well, I'm just a mom. Can we please stop putting just 
ahead of that. Like we need to treasure that role of mother, raising kids to know and love Jesus Christ and to follow him with all of their lives is one of the most world-changing things you can do. And I think maybe we need to kind of continue in our churches to, to prioritize that. To push people, like, are you neglecting this call? Because it's a beautiful, wonderful, life-changing call. Like, we can't just kind of slip into this not calling people. Like, the instruction in here is teach them to, be, uh, to love their husbands and their children. To, to prioritize the ministry of the home. Like, we neglect the scriptures if we neglect that call. But what is the main instruction here? The main instruction is older women teach younger women how to be godly women. Older women teach younger women how to be godly women, specifically in the role of a wife, in the role of a mother, in the ministry of the home. So let me offer a challenge on this one. Um, Older women, again, I'll let you determine who that applies to. Get in the game. Like, Like, take initiative at the younger wives and mothers in this church. Take them out to lunch. Have them over. Talk about what it means to be a wife. Talk about what it means to be a mother. Share what you have learned. It's a direct command in Scripture. You have lived through those things. You have more life experience in that. You need to share it. And being a godly wife and being a godly mother is important. It's valuable. And I know that there's like, there can be this disconnect of, of the awkwardness of making those connections. I would say that this text pushes older women to take initiative in that. You go and make those connections. You help them. You, you provide that instruction for that. And then for the younger women, stop idolizing the wrong things. Here's what I mean by that. The influencers on Instagram or TikTok that you tend to follow... They're all young, beautiful, and wealthy. And you've got a mother of three raising a toddlers, trying to teach a parenting class on social media. She's still in the thick of it. Go find a woman who's done it, who's lived through it. And if everybody you follow on social media is just beautiful and wealthy and young, it really shows what you truly treasure. Beauty, youth, and wealth. Find, find a lady who's got a lot of lines on her face from laughing and crying, and she's raised kids that love Jesus, and she's got a husband that adores her, and say, I want to learn from that person, and begin to value the right things. Um, last one, understanding the influence of her character. So we need to embrace this inclination to be a helper, specifically helping your husband lead in godliness while valuing the ministry of the home, and understanding the influence of your character. Uh, I'm going to toe the line here. Probably cross it. <laughs> I, Ladies, I bet you know how to get a man's attention. And I bet you've experienced being treated differently based on what you wore. And I bet that you've been in situations where you've experienced, when I dressed like this, it seemed like people were nicer to me and paid more attention to me. And when I didn't, it seemed like nobody saw me. Now, let's be honest. There is a reason 
that scripture often addresses women and appearance. I mean, do you remember how Adam responded when he saw Eve? He liked it. We're made that way. And in a fallen world, men can tend to objectify women in the pursuit of their own sexual lust. And women can tend to objectify themselves in the pursuit of attention, value, acceptance, and power. And ladies, you can get pulled into the lie that your beauty is your power. And like all good lies, there's an element of truth where you've seen attention. You've you've seen uh, affirmation get given to you because of those things. But scripture points, I think women particularly, to a different kind of beauty and an influence to have that's often contrasted with physical appearance. And we'll look at some of those texts. But there's this contrast that's being made in Scripture of like, don't, don't chase after this beauty, chase after this beauty. And the world tells you that this beauty is where power is found. And you've experienced some of it to be true, and there's a little twist in it, but the Scripture says, but there's a better power here. There's a better beauty here. There's greater influence here. And you have to understand the power and the beauty and the influence of a godly character. So let's... let's All right, what's the most famous description of the ideal woman in Scripture? Any guesses? Proverbs 31, right? Proverbs 31 ministry. It's always like a women's ministry thing. Uh, it's actually a mother giving instructions to her son. So I think it should, like, men should take that over. We should have Proverbs 31 ministry for young men. Uh, like young single men, Proverbs 31. I think that would be more accurate, but let's uh, probably, probably lose that battle. Proverbs 31. You get this picture of the ideal woman in there. There's this description of her. She's trustworthy. She's hardworking, she's strong, she's not a worrier, she's not a worrier, she doesn't worry. (laughs) Sorry, stuck on that one. Wise, kind, and caring, compassionate, she contributes to the provision of her home, her kids love her, and you read that and you can think, like, this superwoman, like, I don't know how we could ever live out, like, this is the perfect woman, kind of this description in here, and granted, it's a mom trying to help her kid to know what to look for, but uh, one thing to keep in mind is that the descriptions of the woman in Proverbs 31, they're all in past tense, which it means, like, when you look back at this woman's life, there were times where she exemplified these characters. It doesn't necessarily mean that she was all of these things at once all of the time. But when you look at her life, there were seasons and different things where she displayed all of these uh, attributes. But the defining trait of her, which is the title of the section, is that she fears the Lord. She fears the Lord. In fact, that is put in contrast to charm and beauty. Now, let me go there. Proverbs, you got it on the screen? Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. He's telling, uh, like, there's a contrast. Be like, hey, you chase after beauty, you chase after charm, but it's deceitful. Like, you don't, you don't get the full story there. You got to look beneath the surface. I tell you what, would you really be looking for what's more powerful than, than beauty and charm? A woman who fears the Lord. Like, this is what you should look for. This is what you should see. And oftentimes we tell our daughters, and rightfully so, if he is only looking uh, at your looks and only cares about your looks, then move on, right? We tell our sons that. Or we tell our daughters that. 
Like, if he's only concerned about your looks, move on. I think we need to tell our sons as well. If she, if she has to dress in such a way to get attention and finds her value in her looks, run. Run. If the Lord is not enough for her, you won't be either, and she will crush you under her, her insecurities. And ladies, some of you are crushing your husbands under your insecurities. You're looking for him to provide something that you can only find in God. And you just, you need it from him and you pull it from him and you just constantly need that reaffirmation. You need to find your value in him, crush in him. When we find value in the wrong things. Look at verse 25 in this text though. I love this passage in Proverbs. He said, strength and dignity are her clothing. It's what she wears. And she laughs at the time to come. You know what that means? Getting old doesn't bother her. The wrinkles, the everything's like, nah, she laughs at that. Like she's not wrapped up in this physical beauty anymore. Like she can get old and it doesn't bother her. She's valuing the right things. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. All different body types can fear the Lord can laugh at the time to come, can display wisdom, kindness, and caring, and compassion, and be hardworking, and trustworthy, and strong, and not a warrior, and wise. And it's beautiful. And for a man that wants to be godly, which is the kind of man you want, and he was made by God, to need help being godly, then godliness is extremely attractive and it's powerful. Paul is constantly contrasting physical beauty with godly character for women. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 9, he says this. It'd be helpful if I get to the right book. I was like, that doesn't sound right. It's a second Timothy. It's tricky when he wrote two of them. There you go. It says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So, so here's what you see in this text. First, women are to dress with modesty and self-control. Like there, there should be a refrain from sensuality in how you dress. Um, your goal when you get dressed is not to just be sexy. Like, if you, you shouldn't be too concerned about, does my butt look good in these jeans? It's like, why do you want your butt to look good in those jeans? Do you want people to look at your butt? Like, is that a goal for you? Like, what, why, what's the motive behind that? And do they say, hey, don't have a goal when you get dressed just to be sexy. You should clothe yourself with good works for that. Got a little awkward in here. We're okay with that. All right, <laughs> second... He says, not to dress with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing. He's saying, don't flaunt wealth uh, or don't try to find uh, or communicate your value through your wardrobe. 
Like you got the nicest clothes, you got the newest things. Like you're trying to project that this is kind of what where you find value in. It's not your figure, it's not your wardrobe. It's like don't look there, don't look to those places. And then third, dress with good works. That's what he's telling. Them. Like there's this contrast. Rather than trying to like wear this and get people's attention this way, he's like, here's what you should put on: good works. Your character, your dignity, like this is how you should clothe yourself. This is what you should be known for. Or just you think, well, that's Paul. He's kind of nuts. Let's look at Peter. Um, Let's see what he says. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, here's what he says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So the same kind of call that that Paul was doing. It's like, don't clothe yourself with these kind of external things. Don't get wrapped up in kind of your appearance in that way. Rather, uh, clothe yourself with your your character. Um, He says, the hidden person of the heart. Use your character to, to attract um, and then he goes on to say this. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He's saying there is a type of beauty that you don't have to worry about aging with. There, there's a type of beauty that doesn't go away. There's an imperishable beauty, and it talks about a, a gentle and quiet spirit. Those words are like serene or tranquil. It's like a, the image of a, a lake or a a pond that's, there's, there's no wake or waves in it. It's just calm, saying that you're just at peace. You don't have this worry. You don't have this anxiousness. You don't have this stress of aging. You know, I'm trying this competition to keep up with this person. You're just at peace. You, you know who you are, and you're okay with it. You know you're loved by God, and you're good. And he's saying there's an imperishable beauty to that. And then he goes on, he says this, which in God's sight is very precious. There is a concern about pleasing God. I want to please God with how I act. I want to please God with how I dress. I want to please God with how I behave. Like there's a driving motivator to please God, and it goes on this way. An imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. That word holy women, sometimes we hear that and be like, oh, these are like the elite women. But holy is just talking about, it literally means to be set apart. This is how women who are willing to be different than the world, because the world does say, you need this to be valued. You need to look like this to be valuable. You need to dress like this to be valuable. You need to do this to get attention. You need to do this to be successful. And holy women are saying, no, I don't play that game. I'm willing to be different than everybody else. I don't have to dress like that. I don't have to wear that. I don't have to do those things. I'm I'm totally comfortable just trying to please God with my life. They're just willing to be different. And then he closes the section this way. Let's read all five and six. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, there's only, like, there's only one reference where that happens, and it's kind of in a, you know, like a joking way. Um, we're not going to dive into that. Um, but he says, And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything 
that is frightening. So he's not talking about some weak, passive, full of worry type of woman. He's talking about women who aren't afraid of anything that is frightening. Things that are frightening. Things that are legitimately concerning, but yet you still have a peace about them. I don't live in fear that this might happen, and I don't live in fear that this might happen. And what if he does this, and what if my kids do this? And they're just kind of opposite of that kind of tranquil, at peace, uh, confidence of pleasing God, this kind of imperishable beauty that I know who I am, I know who God is. You're just not afraid of anything that is frightening. And it's like, well, how, how do you do that? How, how do you not be afraid of things that are frightening? How do you not be plagued with worry about things that might actually happen to your children? How do you not be plagued with worry about things that might actually happen to your husband? How do you not just kind of be wrecked and in stress and a mess at all times for those possibilities? Well, this is what it says. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They hoped in God. Their hope was in God. They didn't crush their husband with it. They didn't crush their kids with it. They didn't try to like have this perfect home and this perfect marriage. They had a hope in a perfect God. They had a confidence in their future with a perfect God. And they were free to be at peace. And they were free to love. And they were free to be a help in that godliness. And it was imperishable beauty. Do you hope in God? Or are you just kind of plagued with worry and anxiety? Fearful? Lead to manipulation and control? Do you find yourself being competitive, trying to keep up with her, trying to keep up with this, trying to look the perfect way? Or do you have a passion to please God? Do you have a willingness to be set apart? Like, I don't have to play that game that all these other women in this world are playing. No, I, I seek to please God first, and I hope in God. Because there's something really beautiful about that. And it's a type of beauty that won't ever go away. And as a man, let me tell you this, there's something really helpful about that. And for men, that's like, I want to be godly. There's something really helpful about that in our lives. And who best displayed a commitment to good works? Was not wrapped up in appearance and had no beauty that we should desire him. Was a servant with a submissive attitude. Was gentle and lowly in spirit. Wasn't afraid of anything and sought most to please God the Father. Jesus. Jesus Christ. Listen, it is a high calling to be a woman, to be a godly woman. And to be a godly woman is extremely helpful. I mean, can you imagine if the women at Veritas kind of had this disposition of like, I don't need to keep up with all the pressure put on women in this world. Like, I'm just, I just feel free from that. Could you imagine the women at Veritas that were just committed to good works, clothed themselves with dignity? Can you imagine if the women at Veritas just had a disposition of peace 
and not worry or stress, that they hoped in God. Do you know how helpful that would be in shaping the culture of this church and bringing glory to God? So here's my homework question for you. Ladies, I want you to ask your husband, how do you need me to be a better help to you? And then just shut up and listen. How do you need me to be a better help to you? Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the gift of marriage. And you designed this. And we believe you know what you're doing. And I pray that you would help men be godly husbands here. And you'd help the women be godly wives here. But everyone in this room who is married has tasted the, the failures in marriage, the, the hurts in marriage. And tomorrow, as we look into your word, we're going to see how to improve the flavor of our marriage. But as we lay a foundation, I pray that we would just walk out of here confident that you know what you're doing when you design marriage. It is a union between a man and a woman. So help us understand what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and how we are to relate to each other in marriage. Your good design. We pray this in your name. Amen.